Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join Gelt. Com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting guest because we're going to be talking about going from being an operator to an investor, from an investor now to an operator again. Uh, he's done it multiple times, you know, the whole thing of building, scaling, financing. We're going to be talking about successes. We're going to be talking about failures, but I don't talk about failures. I mean, I talk about lessons learned, you know, more than anything. The more you fail, the more that you succeed at the end of the day. But without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Yanda Ehrlich. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So originally from Paris, from France, you know, eventually you came here to the U.S., but give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, life was great. You know, I'm, uh, I'm fortunate to have a, uh, Still today, a very good relationship with both my parents and my younger brother, which uh, I guess, uh, you know, I count myself lucky. Uh, but yeah, born in uh, in Paris, France. Uh, I'll date myself, I guess, uh, a little over 45 years ago at this point. Um, and uh, yeah, first nine years, kind of, you know, idyllic experience, like good friends, went to the same school. Younger brother was born about three years, uh, three years later. And, uh, you know, had a blast. And then uh, right around age nine, uh, Big move, right? Move from from Paris to to Austin, Texas. So. I mean, that's a massive move because I mean, at nine is everything you knew. That was Paris. It was France, and I know that French are very French. So you know, obviously, right. being taken out of your own circle, your comfort zone, and then all of a sudden you come to the other side of the Atlantic. I mean, wow, that's quite the move. How was that for you? I'm sure that that shaped you, who you are today, and also the way that you deal with uncertainty. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I would say in the moment it was uh, it was a pretty uh, you know terrifying experience, right? I uh, I uh, moved to a country where I didn't speak the language well. I'd taken a little bit of English classes in in France, but you know it doesn't prepare you for for the U.S. and certainly not for Texas. Um, but I think in retrospect, you know, probably one of the the best formative experiences in my life. Learn how to. Uh, see the world from an outsider's perspective, uh, see the world from different perspectives, learn how to make new friends, rebuild uh, a life even as a as a, you know, relatively young kid, etc. So all of the uh, this, you know, this is to tell you, right, like all the trials and tribulation as you're living them turn out to be uh, to be gifts uh, after the after the facts. 
So how, what about computers? How do you get into, into computers? How do you develop that love? Yeah, totally. So, so my, uh, my dad, fortunately, uh, has been um, in computers his whole career. He's, he's now retired, but he uh, actually started out as a software engineer at an oil and gas company called Schlumberger and, and rose through the ranks over uh, an almost 50-year career to be the, the chief information uh, officer of the company before retiring in the, in the 2010s. Um, but he uh, gifted me I'm trying to remember. I think when I was 10 years old, my my first computer, um, it was like an 8086. I'm gonna I'm gonna date myself again, but uh, you know, I started out by uh, playing games as as I guess kids do. Uh, but pretty quickly, um, he taught me a little bit of programming. I think first in Logo, then in Basic, then in C, and I was hooked. I uh, I've never been very crafty with my hands, right? I'm not, I'm not that kind of guy who like makes sculptures or like makes little machines, et cetera. But computers afforded me the uh, ability to create things from scratch, basically with my mind and, you know, tapping my fingers on the keyboard. Um, and uh, it turns out I was creative just in a, in a different way than, than, than other kids. And, and uh, you know, I went down that rabbit hole and uh, I, I've, I've been down it my, my whole career. I've never looked back. So. Problem solving. I mean, that's definitely has been a, a driver for you. I mean, you went to Rice University, you ended up stu studying computer science, and then you went into the corporate world, right? I mean, you did the Microsoft. I mean, you've worked at a company like Google as well. But it sounds like at a point in time in between those two, you felt that it was necessary to, to really, you know, develop more of the business side of things. So why was that the case? Yeah, you know, um, so I think the first thing, right, like uh, as um, France in the in the 70s and 80s, probably now the hotbed of entrepreneurship. Um, and so I, you know, I, I studied computer science because I love computers and that got me to Microsoft where I think I, you know, I got the opportunity to train on what it's like to be a, a competent corporate computer scientist. Um, but at some point in that time, I um, I discovered that I enjoyed working with people who worked with computers more than directly working with the computers. And so I, I switched into, into product management. And that got me down this kind of business rabbit hole where, you know, eventually I was managing people or trying to influence their behavior. And I realized that like, doing all this stuff through gut feel, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really sure I'm doing it right. Maybe I should go uh, get some schooling to, to learn how to, how to do this stuff. And that, uh, that's what took me to, to Stanford Business School uh, to get my MBA. And, and, um, you know, the beauty there is I think a lot of my peers had been in economics, et cetera, and, and they were kind of like getting a, a refresh on their existing skills. But for me, I, I, all my time prior to business school had been spent, you know, coding on computers. And so all of this like economics and marketing and organizational behavior and, and, and all that stuff was, was completely new to me. And I loved it. I, I felt like my learning curve was back to like being uh, vertical. Uh, and uh, I like learning and problem solving, as you, as you said. So it, 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 uh, it really drew me in. And, uh, and then from there, uh, getting to apply those skills to, to Google and then, and then on to startups. But I mean, if you're there in the land of opportunity, you know, you're doing your MBA in Stanford. You know, some of yeah. the best founders have come out of that school. Why not going at it right away? Why, why did you go back to corporate? Yeah, you know, I didn't have a good idea. I thought I wanted to start a company out of Stanford, but it turns out, you know, in order to be an entrepreneur, you need to have a good idea and a good co-founder. And uh, graduating from from GSB, I, I didn't. And and actually, you know, I was fortunate enough that Eric Schmidt, who was at the time the, the 
the CEO of Google was was one of the professors in one of my classes. And he was like, hey, listen, like you should come over to Google and and uh, help build some software there. And, you know, in 2000, let me think, 2005, Google was still quite small. I mean, it's it, it was a, a decent sized company. I have a couple thousand people, I think. Uh, but still a ton of opportunity and still a ton of growth. And so um, I took Eric up on his uh, on his offer and, and spent the next year and a half, um, you know, get, getting to see uh, a corporate but but much earlier in its in its life, and then eventually did find uh, that co founder and that idea and then uh, went off on the uh, on the entrepreneurial journey as I uh, as I had uh, hoped that would happen to me. So. And those are four companies. So, um, you know, obviously you got the successes and obviously, you know, the ones that they, they didn't unfold the way that they, that you would want it. Right. But I guess, you know, just so that they, so that for, for the listeners, you know, especially on the ones that had, you know, the, the good outcome there, you know, let's say, let's just talk about them, you know, and, and, and most importantly, the lesson that you got out of each one of them. So let's talk about the first company. So what were you guys doing there? And obviously, you know, ended up having a really nice outcome. So how did that uh, acquisition come about as well? Yeah, for sure. So we we built technology. This is, you know, the the early days of like the the chat world. And we uh, we built technology that it essentially enabled people to build chat on top of existing communities. The, the, the product was called Social IM. Um, when we built, Interestingly, we built chat on top of Facebook before Facebook had had its own chat. And so again, I'll, I'll date myself a little bit in, in this and saw as a result, you know, pretty significant growth in, in the product. Um, but eventually, Facebook built their own chat and started competing with us on their own platform, which which makes it tough. But in the in the course of this, we built some really uh, nice fundamental technology that enabled people to basically, you know, grab an existing community and add synchronous communications to it. And that technology became attractive to a company called iScoot, which was uh, part of a software division of, of Qualcomm. And so the, the, the first, um, you know, the first acquisition was really, for me, a technology acquisition. The, the, the company was quite small um, at the time that we sold it, but we had built this kind of cool fundamental tech that was um, getting value in the market from just like a, you know, a, a pure play um, almost technology innovation. And that is different than my, my second acquisition, which was, um, you know, more acquired on, on product and, and market, et cetera. So it was fun to, you know, experience both, right. Cause they're, cause they're obviously they're, they're quite different and the level of, uh, conversation and, and strategic impact that you can have from, from both of those is, is, um, is, is different. So. And I believe the first one was called Mogat, and then the second one was called Choice Vendor. Correct? That is correct. Yeah. So the the, the company was the on the on the first one. The company was called Mogad. Uh, the product was called Social IM, and that's the thing that really took us uh, away. We when, when we named the company, we just needed a name, and so it was like the weirdest thing that we could find a domain for. But the uh, the, the product that that uh, made the company and and created the opportunity for the acquisition with social IM. And then the se- the second company, that's right, is was called Choice Vendor, both the company and the product. And that's the one that we ended up uh selling to LinkedIn uh in we think 2010, thereabouts. So so what is the difference from let's say selling a business more for like you were saying the technology versus more like the product and you know perhaps the other the other areas that you had you know how does it differ from one transaction to the other one in terms of process 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say that, you know, the product and market one is a it tends to be a more successful outcome, right? The the technology tends to be a piece of how uh, a, a successful company is built. But obviously, if you can, if you can build a business that makes an impact in the market and, and uh, creates a, a reason for an acquirer to buy it, um, you know, to have access to a customer base and a product line, etc, that, that that's obviously the, the better outcome. So I feel like, I guess, in that regards, I got a little bit smarter from from the first company to to the second, but it turns out these paths are are, are nonlinear because the third one was worse than the than the first two. But uh, but yeah, I think in in that regard, you know, it, we had quite senior strategic level conversations at LinkedIn. I remember spending a lot of time at the at the time with the VP of product and the and the CEO, and um, this was you know LinkedIn's I think first maybe second or first uh, acquisition that that they'd ever made. It was done pre IPO when LinkedIn was still defining itself, um, and so you know qu- quite a quite a significant uh, endeavor for for both parties. Versus social IM to to iScoot, you know, not nearly as much, right? It was still a a nice outcome for us, but but a much smaller act. But like, I don't think I don't think the CEO of Qualcomm ever knew that we existed, right? In 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 that regard. So, so so then the third one, you know, didn't have the outcome that you had desired, and I'm sure that from the previous ones, you didn't learn as much as you did on the third one, eh? because when you fall, you know, it's a when it hurts, and when you really get to reflect. So so what happened there? Why why it didn't work out? Yeah, you know, I think too early, right? So we uh, we started a business. the The idea was to build an intelligent AI assistant, um, and so I, you know, I, I've I've loved AI since I was a little kid. I've I've loved AI since I was like 13 years old. You know, my my father was a computer scientist, as I as I mentioned, said, you know, like oh, you should go into computer science, Yana, but but don't do AI because it's you know it's always five years away. It's never it never quite quite fulfills its its promise. Um, and I, I think he, he's now eventually wrong, but we'll get back to that. But I think in, in 2011, he was right. So we, we started this AI assistant. It meant to kind of schedule and reschedule meetings. Um, and it just, the tech wasn't there. It didn't work, right? We, we, we got early customers who were excited by the promise of it, and then the tech would fail them. And, you know, as you know, if, you're, if you have an important business meeting and your EA schedules it wrong, you know, you don't trust that EA again, right? And and in this case, that EA was our product, and so we would fail for uh, our early customers, and uh, and then those early customers, you know, that we we would break that trust, and it was just really really difficult to to regain. And so we we tried a bunch of stuff, and we tried a bunch of advances at the time to try to improve the technology, but you know, frankly, the state of the art for for machine learning in in 2011 was just not good enough to build a, a product that uh, that could work. And so we 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 spent you know, almost two years, uh, trying a bunch of different approaches at it. Um, you know, we'd raise, we'd raise a seed round because we thought, oh, we'd raise a seed round, we'll get some customers and we'll raise a bigger round. We ended up never raising that bigger round. We just kind of slowly bled through the, uh, the capital that we raised. And eventually we got to a point where we had to shut the the business down. And, um, you know, it, it was, it was a sad time, I think mostly because like the, uh, the angel investors who had invested in the, in the business were my friends and people I looked up to and, you know, I hate losing money and, and probably most of all hate losing my, my friends and, and mentors money. Um, but at the same time, it was a, it was an incredible learning experience. Uh, you know, some of the folks who, who went on, uh, to, to build that company with me have now gone on to very senior roles at a number of, of very big companies. My, my designer ran a, a very large org of design at, at, uh, 
at Facebook afterwards. And so we, I, I, I built this like uh, core uh, group of people. We were like seven or eight people at the at the peak of the business. Um, the the COO there went off to to start afterwards a, a business that I invested in that sold to Apple that was fabulously successful. So like the alumni network was really uh, was really powerful. And and obviously, um, you know, it's t- it's tough to kind of beat your head against a wall and and not succeed, but startups are really hard. I think it, it also created a ton of empathy for me with other entrepreneurs. Um, my friends, folks that I ended up investing in after the fact when I when I became an investor. Um, uh, yeah, so lo- lots, lots of lessons uh, learned from from that experience, despite the despite the tough times. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So, I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech Domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety value and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. Now, after this, you started your next company. And basically your next company, you know, it's actually still going. It's called Parsable. And they've raised like over 130 million or something like that. So you were there, the the founder, the co-founder, the CEO as well. You know what what happened there? Because you know, eventually you decide to you know turn over the reins. You know, I mean, you guys got started in 2013, and then in 20 about 2017, you know, is when you decided to turn over you know the reins of the CEO role to someone else. So, what were you guys doing at Parsable, and why did you turn the reins over to someone else? Yeah, totally, totally. This is a this is a great story. So, uh, I'll go a little a little nerdy at at first. So, uh, you know, we we started the business. It builds a workflow and collaboration software for for industrial workers. Um, and the the story there is a little bit like the you know the history of my life kind of rewound back. So, as I as I mentioned, my father worked in oil and gas. Um, I had a conversation with him in in 2013 just kind of curious, like, hey, what do your colleagues use to, to do their work? And, and uh, you know, he had mentioned, you know, in the IT sector, like we're all using computers, etc. But most of the manufacturing workers at these very large uh, oil and gas and mining and manufacturing companies are still walking around with uh, checklists and, uh, and walkie talkies. And I was like, wait, that we're in the 2010s, like, how is that still happening? And so that led my, my co-founders uh, and I down this kind of exploratory path. And, and interestingly, one of my co-founders, his father had worked in mining, the other co-founder, his father had also worked in oil and gas. So we had this kind of one foot in like high tech, uh, you know, Silicon Valley, and then the other foot in like the family foot from like, you know, having exposure to these, uh, to these broad industrials that, you know, maybe had not benefited from all the latest uh, technologies. Um, 
And so we went down this exploratory path and we eventually ended up building this product um, that basically helped uh, blue collar workers, industrial workers across a broad base of industries um, navigate um, and, and do their best work uh, using using digital tools to replace these checklists and, and walkie talkies. Um, and that was super fun. I think the, the 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 first few years of that business, like figuring out the product market fit and figuring out what product uh, worked for those um, uh, for those sectors and how people would use it and was it BYOB and what the user interface sh should be for this type of software in a very loud environment, et cetera. All, all of that stuff um, uh, was was quite exciting. And in the course of this, about in 2016, we hired this like very um, talented and competent head of sales, this competent CRO. Um, and I remember, you know, in in, in early 2017, um, the 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 kind of the the product evolution had hit this. You know, we continued evolving the product afterwards, but it hit this peak where like the max of the learning curve had kind of plateaued. Right, we we had figured out the product to sell, uh, and it became broadly a sales and marketing execution game at that point to to win the business. Uh, and I remember being I, actually the, the thing that I that, that I that I remember is that being at a customer dinner in Houston, Texas, with a number of customers and uh, and Lawrence, the, the the gentleman who ended up promoting to to CEO at the time. And he was a he was having a blast, right? He had this product that was like ready to sell, and he was just excited to have these sales conversations. And I just wanted to talk about the product, like ask questions about like where to evolve it, et cetera. Because I'm a nerd at 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 heart, right? Um, and none of the people at this dinner wanted to talk about the product. They just wanted to talk about like how they should buy it, implement it, et cetera. And so I remember at the at the time, like looking at Lawrence, I was like, man, this guy's having way more fun, and he's a much better like leader for for this business at at, at this point. Um, and so, you know, that realization, it, it first dawned in my head and then we had conversations with the board, et cetera. It's a, it's a bittersweet conversation, uh, because, you know, it, for, from one perspective, you, you kind of wish that you're the CEO that like starts the company and takes it all the way. And I had this realization that like, ah, maybe I'm not the right guy. This, but like, we, you know, I've, I've taken this thing from kindergarten to middle school, but like now it needs like a high school coach or, a, or a college professor or something like that. And I'm, I'm not the same person, right? Like you you know, most kindergarten teachers are not also college professors. And so you, you have this point where you have to like hand the baton of your, of your baby over to, to somebody else. And, um, you know, it's, it's still, a it's still a, uh, an event I, I, I think about, but I also, I, I don't regret it. I feel like I made the right choice, uh, to, to transition the CEO role, transition onto the board. And then it obviously created a ton of other opportunities for me, uh, after the fact in, in, in investing and, and here at Weights and Biases, um, that wouldn't have been the case if I were still running Parsable and I get the benefit of uh, being a major shareholder and still being involved in it, uh, but getting to do uh, to do some other stuff as well. Well, let's talk about doing some other stuff as well, because, I mean, one of the things that uh, that you definitely took on was investing. You know, after after this experience, uh, you know, you took some time. And then, you know, I mean, you you were already an angel investor. You were doing some angel investments, you know, I mean, incredible companies that you invested in, like Thumbtack, Masterclass, so really great angel investments. Uh, now, how does the whole VC, you know, idea, you know, of becoming a general partner, how does that come together? Yeah, you know, luck, like most things, it turns out. Um, so yeah, so I'd, I'd been angel investing since about 2008, um, mostly in friends. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have, you know, very smart friends like Jonathan, Marco at Thumbtack and, and David at Masterclass and Naval at AngelList. And, and so it, it afforded me an opportunity to, to build a, a nice angel track record. Um, and so 
you know, I, I'd been entrepreneuring for for about ten years, and when I when I uh, left Parsable on in an operating role, my um, my wife at, at the time, we'd been dating basically for for I, I'd been entrepreneuring for all the time that we'd been dating. We'd been recently married, and she was like, you know, please like a break from startups. Like you're working 20, 20 hours a day. I never see you. Uh, and uh, and so I said sure, and then I was like, well, what what else do I know how to do? You know, at this point, and and investing in startups and helping and advising startups was the only other thing, right? And so my original idea was actually to like continue to angel invest, maybe raise a small fund, and and do that as a as the next step. But I I got a call from a very good friend who we uh, we co invested uh, a few years back, and we had stayed close. And uh, he had recently joined uh, this multi-asset manager called Kotu to help them launch a, a venture fund. And so he had lived in LA, but he moved to San Francisco. He calls me out of the blue one day and he's like, hey, you know, we should do this together. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing next led, 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 to, the, led to the next. And, uh, and in uh, mid-2018, uh, joined Kotu and, and partnered up uh, with Matt. Uh, and he and I, uh, and obviously the the Kotu folks, Thomas and Philippe, and and the whole crew of Kotu, um, uh, launched Kotu's first venture fund, and we we raised that fund in in December of of 2018. It was a 700 million dollar first fund, which I think probably among the largest first funds uh, in in terms of fund vintage. Uh, and uh, I got the opportunity to to run the enterprise uh, software investing practice for that fund, and lead a bunch of AI ML investments myself, but also manage a, a, a team of folks that invested across the stack from infrastructure all the way to all the way to apps. And uh, yeah, it was a it was an amazing experience. So how many how how, how much does Kotu have in assets under management? Do you know? Total, I want to say like 40 billion or something like that. But the uh, you know, the, it's broadly they invest in kind of three categories, right? The 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 public uh, investment fund, which has like a hedge fund and a long only fund, et cetera. That's the 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 namesake of the fund, the fund that that Philippe uh, started back in the the late nineties. And then uh, I want to say in like the 2013 or 2014 or so, they launched a, a growth equity fund. Um, and uh, at the time that I joined, it was on its third fund. I think now it's either on its fifth or sixth fund. And it, it you know, this vintage of kind of very large growth funds investing in series B, C, all the way up to, to pre-IPO. Uh, and then in 2018, we launched the, the early stage product, the venture product that invested in seed, pre-seed, series A, early series B. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I raised that first fund or we raised that first fund. Uh, I was there for the second fund as well, helping raise that one. And then I think they've raised a third fund since, uh, since I left to, to go join Weights and Biases. So then let, let's talk about the investment side of things, because, I mean, you were there for over three years, you know, deploying money. I guess, what, how did it feel like? You know, like, obviously, you were an operator before, an entrepreneur, and now being on the other side of the table, you know, on the other side of the table, what, well, how did it feel? I mean... What were you looking for? How did you perhaps, how do you think that has impacted your worldview and also the way that you were thinking about investing in startups? And what did you find that was surprising to you of, wow, I can't believe that this is what a successful company looks like? Yeah, for sure. So I, I would say, I think that the thing that I started out with is I had this North Star of wanting to be the investor that would be my own dream investor as an entrepreneur. Right. And I've and I've been fortunate, actually, by the way, in, in all of these businesses to have like very lovely investors that I have 
very good longitudinal relationships with. And I was just like, okay, if I can Frankenstein all the best parts of all of these people and like kind of become my own dream investor, what would that look like, right? Someone who's like, always willing to jump on a call, always helpful, willing to talk strategy, but also tactics, make introductions, but also like play with a product, like all of that stuff, right? And so I, I launched into it from from that perspective. And I think actually having um, the operator experience and, and they're honestly the the good as well as the bad, right? The, the successes as well as the failures, uh, both provided me this um, ability to relate to entrepreneurs that were going through their journey and also really empathize with them as they were going through that journey. Because entrepreneurship is really hard. And the founder CEO is the is the protagonist in the story, right? Like in the investors are, are help are helpers, right? We're like, we're, uh, we're there to make the journey, uh, hopefully more successful, but but really not taking the spotlight away from the from the protagonist. Um, but then I also learned a ton. And I am, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have learned from from Thomas and Philippe and the folks at Kotu on like, really how to evaluate massive trends. Uh, because ultimately, I think, you know, th- th- there's a big belief here, you know, it's like, a, if you have a great market and an okay team, you you tend to build a, a, a pretty meaningful business. And if you have a great team and a bad market, you know, those businesses don't, don't, go, don't do as well, unfortunately, right? No, no matter how great the team is. And so I sharpened my skills on how to evaluate massive trends and, and, uh, and massive potential for businesses. But then I also got, um, you know, my, my cred as an entrepreneur allowed me to win some deals against, uh, you know, better known, better branded venture funds, uh, where maybe the, uh, the, the, the person there, uh, couldn't forge as much of a, an empathetic relationship with, uh, with the founder on the, on, on the counterpoint. Uh, and so I think, it was really the benefit of like a, a ton of lessons from the KOTU experience and the folks and the folks around, and then also getting to uh, parlay all of the uh, the skills and the scars that I'd built up over over the years into uh, into a winning combination to to get to invest in some in some pretty exciting companies, particularly in in AIML, which you know at the time was early and now clearly has has uh, has arrived. Yeah. Oh yeah, everyone is talking about AI nowadays, <laughs> and, and nowadays everyone you you were right, you were right. Now now for you, you know, here you are, you know, a position of a general partner, you know, seven hundred million bucks, you know, deploying left and right. I mean, it sounds crazy to kind of like leave all of that behind and to join, you know, perhaps you know, like uh, one of the portfolio companies. Yeah, I mean, maybe it was. I don't know. I live my life through the regret minimization framework. You know, there's this great quote. Um, I think it's attributed to Goethe, but I'm not sure. I think it's probably fakely attributed, which is like, you know, regret for the things you've done can be tempered with time. It's the regret for the things you haven't done that's unconsolable. Uh, and I, that, that quote has really stuck with me throughout my life. I, I heard it, I think, in business school first, but it, it's really like it's embedded itself in my decision framework. And so ultimately, you know, I, I had a great job at Kotu, great mentors and, and a great team. But as I mentioned, I've I've loved AIML since I was in my teens. And, you know, my dad told me in my teens, like, don't do AIML. It's always five years away. And guess what? He was right for 30 years, right? And it finally arrived. And it's finally happening. And I had invested and had been on the board and had forged this 20-year relationship with the founder CEO of the hottest AIML tools company. Uh, and I had an opportunity to to come join as a senior executive and help build and you know watch the the evolution of this space from from inside the space instead of 
you know, jo joining the team of protagonists, right, in some sense, and in, in, in helping build this stuff. And I just thought, you know, fast forward 30 years from now, or 40 years from now, talking to my grandkids, you know, which thing would I regret more not doing? And, uh, and I, I just, um, I would have regretted not seeing uh, the, the, the world from this vantage point. And so I gave up this, you know, fancy job with, you know, lucrative pay and an and exciting data to job to, to, to go do this work. And, um, you know, I, I don't regret it. It's, it's such an incredible time to be uh, building in, in AIML. And, and I feel, um, you know, grateful and honored to, to get to spend it with Lucas and the, and the rest of the crew at Weights and Biases. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, and, and they're very lucky to have you. Now, in this case, you know, just for the people listening, weights and biases, what do you guys do? What's the business model there? How do you guys make money? Yeah, absolutely. So we are a, a developer tools platform for machine learning practitioners. So basically, if you have uh, people building ML models uh, inside your company, we are the dev tools for them. So think like GitHub or New Relic or whatever for people building ML models. And we're, we're fortunate enough to count over 800 enterprises uh, as our customers including companies that tend not to uh, buy software from startups. So, you know, Meta and Samsung and NVIDIA and OpenAI uh, are, are all customers. And actually, notably, OpenAI was one of our uh, earliest customers, uh, and they'd been uh, training models uh, on top of Weights and Biases platform from even before the, 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 the GPT days. And certainly all of the GPT models have been, have been trained uh, using our using our software, so uh, we're basically we're the we're the kind of the premier dev tooling for um, for the folks building the the next generation of software. So I guess uh, you know obviously the company now you know it's a, a rocket ship. You know it has raised over two hundred million. I mean you guys are like growing by by an incredible amount to the amount of employees you know that you're adding. I guess if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Oh, man. I mean, I think it's hard to know without being able to see the future when you're there, right? I think, I think the, the, the tips I would give my younger self are honestly the tips I tried to follow, right? So work with friends, uh, like work with pe really smart people you trust, in a space that really matters to you, where you really care about the customer, right? Because ultimately, um, you know, in, in the entrepreneur's journey, you're going to face dark times where it doesn't look like people want to buy your product, or there's some headwinds in the market, or etc. And I think that the thing that keeps you going in those situations, one, it's the people that you work with, right? The, 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 you know, brothers and sisters in arms, right? The fact that you're going through this shared journey. And then I think the other thing is really caring about the problem that you're solving and the, and the people who, 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 who live that problem. I think part of the reason that Weights and Biases is such an exciting company, and we'll tell you, like I, when I met it in 2019, they were building tools for ML practitioners. And there were maybe 10,000 ML practitioners at the time. Like, I remember the conversations at Kotu where some people were like, is this a niche business? Like, should we be investing in this as a $700 million fund? And I remember telling them, like, listen, Lucas feels like he's been put on this earth to build tools for machine learning practitioners. 
he believes this is going to be an ascendant role inside of organizations. And he's one of the smartest people I've ever met. Like, I'm tempted to believe him here. And the funny thing is, you know, we look now five years later, and there's almost a million of these ML practitioners around the world with like fast growth. It's like the most popular, you know, major in colleges and universities to go pursue. But that was not obvious at the time. And in the 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 business, the thing that powered the business through this journey is this deep desire to want to make the life of those practitioners better. And I think that is generally applicable across startups. Like if you find a customer who you love, who has a problem that you think you can help solve, and there's enough of those people over time, eventually, that's the key to a to a great business. And then, you know, go build that thing with like the smartest people you can, you can, you know, collect, uh, because that makes the day to day really fun. I love it. So, Yanda, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, you know, I'm I'm Yanda at Yanda, uh, uh, a, a personal email, uh, and then I'm on Twitter at Yanda. Uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty easy to find me. Yanda.com on the web. Uh, yeah, it's uh, I've I've tried I've tried to capture that brand wherever I can, so I'm I'm generally pretty easy to find. Easy enough. Well, hey, Yanda, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks again for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.